For several weeks this summer, we walked through the stories of our faith ancestors, the stories of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers. We left off with the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Joseph had climbed up the corporate ladder and he was one of the lead people in Pharaoh's government which gave him the privilege when the famine came to invite his 11 brothers and their entire households and to bring them to Egypt in the midst of this multi-year famine. And in Egypt, the people of the family of Israel found safety and nourishment and a fruitful new beginning. Today we have turned the page from Genesis into Exodus and a new era has begun. A generation has passed, and that family of people that came to Egypt just as 70 members has now expanded into a nation. The Israelites are growing in number, and from what we can tell, things seem to be going well for them. It seems as if they have been able to create an amicable, peaceful life alongside the Egyptians. Finally, this family who caused and experienced generations of dysfunction and betrayal and lying and trickery and a host of other problematic scenarios has finally found their way to the promised land. Well, not for long. Verse 8 begins with the words, A new king rose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The author of this book wants us to know that the collective memory of how Joseph saved the Egyptians and others has been forgotten. It's not that Pharaoh is not aware of Joseph. It is highly unlikely that he has made it to the throne without being told who Joseph was. Oral tradition in this time was extremely significant. Pharaoh knows who Joseph is. He's just intentionally ignoring this connection, ignoring how the lives of Egyptians and Israelites are closely intertwined. For some reason, when the king looks around and sees the large number of Israelites living in Egypt, he is terrified. He is the most powerful person in this part of the world, but for some reason he sees this group of migrants as a threat. The very thought that they could rise up and threaten his safety and security is enough to make him take action. He chooses to take his own fear and to sow them among his people. Look, he says, the Israelites are a threat to us. We must act now or they will continue to grow in number and they will rise against us. Pharaoh uses fear to stir up trouble. He uses fear of the unknown to put actions into place which will guarantee his survival and give him more power. But he does this by telling the Egyptian people that their livelihoods are at risk too. Despite their lives being intertwined for two generations, the Israelite people are suddenly labeled as the others. And their presence is not only not wanted, but it is despised. 
Pharaoh begins to use this narrative of fear and he puts systems into place that will oppress people and he does this to minimize them into nothing more than bodies that can be used to do whatever he commands. And none of the Egyptians stop this from happening. Pharaoh's actions aren't directly affecting them or harming them. Why upset the status quo? What good can come from speaking out against the injustices they now see in their midst? People who used to be their friends and their neighbors are now people they, they believe they should be afraid of. Relationships that used to offer a life-giving connection have been severed by a person in power who is planting seeds of fear instead of seeds of community. Instead of cultivating camaraderie, Pharaoh is cultivating chaos, but it doesn't work. Pharaoh's fears don't seem to lessen. In fact, the tighter his grip gets on the Israelite people, the more he seems to spiral into a manic frenzy. Slavery and forced labor in brutal and back-breaking conditions just aren't enough. He decides that he must keep the Israelites from growing in number, and the next logical action is to cut off the population before it even has time to become a threat. He calls the Hebrew midwives to him, two women named Shifra and Pua. He orders them to go against what they are called to do and to do the exact opposite. He orders them to take life instead of ushering it into the world. Instead of writing baby announcements, these women are being ordered to write obituaries. Shifra and Pua are called to, be to bring life into the world, not to destroy it. The lives of their people have been thrown into chaos, and now their very hands are commanded to add to the chaos that has seeped into this community. Luckily for the Israelites, Shifra and Pua are used to chaos. Midwives are built for this. Those of you who have been in the room when a baby is being born know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure Dr. Brooks back here could add lovely illustrations to this sermon as he has delivered many a baby in this community. Chaos is part of bringing life into the world. Things can change in a split second. These midwives have to be the right mixture of flexibility and confidence, of being prepared and being go with the flow. Birthing new life, no matter what it looks like, is never easy or predictable, even in today's world. These women were uniquely equipped to respond to this next level of chaos that Pharaoh was trying to spread. Verse 17 tells us that the midwives fear God. Now, they don't fear God in the same way that Pharaoh fears the Israelites. This isn't the kind of shaking in your sandals fear that we might think of. The word used here for fear in Hebrew can also be translated as having reverence for. The midwives reverenced God. And yes, that is a word. I googled it a lot to make sure. The midwives had a high level of reverence or a high level of respect for God. And this fearful reverence of God can only be found when you are in relationship. And it was this relationship that they had with God that made all of the difference. 
The juxtaposition of these two types of fears isn't just a coincidence. The fact that one type of fear leads to division and oppression and even death, and the other leads to relationships and strength and life cannot be ignored. It would have been so easy for the midwives to give in to the fear that Pharaoh forced upon them. This could be the end of the story, with the people in power continuing to abuse that power at the expense of those who don't have the resources or the means to fight back. We all know that stories like this one fill our history books and our newspapers more often than they should. But instead of giving into fear, our story pivots. Even when it seems like all is lost, God is still at work in the world. God begins to usher in new life and to bring healing and wholeness even in the midst of chaos. This story reminds us that even when we feel like all is lost, God is still at work in the world and that systems based on fear or oppression and death will not have the last word. In this time period, being a midwife was not an honorable job. It was likely that these women were unmarried and were unable to have children of their own, therefore placing them in a very low social status in society. In terms of people that Pharaoh thought he needed to be afraid of, these women weren't even on his radar. Shifra and Pua become agents of God's promise. They teach us that the work of doing justice requires us to be open to our own relationship with God and to be open to how God's spirit is moving in and among us. They look fear in the face and they say, not today. Their decision changes the course of history. Their decision continues the story so that many years later, generations later, in a world that has yet again been ordered by a powerful ruler to kill baby boys, that there is a baby boy who is born in the midst of chaos. And this baby boy survives and flourishes and grows up to be the savior that you and I know and love. In our children's sermon, I asked us collectively what we are afraid of. And we heard answers like the dark and creepy crawly things and the doctor, and I'm sure there were answers shared that I didn't hear. And we laughed at some of those answers, right? Not because we're making fun of them, but maybe it was a nervous laughter. Oh, snakes, yes. <laughs> I don't like those either. But if I had you write down on a piece of paper the thing that you are most afraid of in the world... I imagine that there would be very different answers than the real but surface level fears we shared just a moment ago. What are you most afraid of? What is the thing that when you think of it, it causes you to get a tight feeling in your stomach or your breathing to increase or a cold sweat to form? What keeps you awake at night when you start thinking about what would happen if this thing that you fear becomes a reality? For the past nine years, Chapman University in California has taken a survey of American fears. They have a whole department that focuses on the study of fear in America. And in 2022, just last year, 
Out of a list of 90 different fears that they collected, these 10 had the highest percentage of people who were afraid or very afraid of these things. Here is the list. Corrupt government officials. People I love becoming seriously ill. Russia using nuclear weapons. People I love dying. The U.S. becoming involved in another world war. The pollution of drinking water. Not having enough money for the future. Economic or financial collapse. The pollution of oceans and rivers and lakes. Number 10 is biological warfare. The fears that are on this list and the fear that came into your mind when I asked you what do you fear most, they are real fears. They're fears that can paralyze us if we stop and think about them and let them take control. For some of us, we have been in those places of paralyzing fear. They're fears that we carry and that are planted deep into our being. Whether it's a fear of dying or a fear of being alone, a fear of not being enough or a fear of being too much, a fear of being forgotten or not making a difference, all of these fears that I'm sure some of us carry have just as much merit as being afraid of another war or of losing someone we love or being afraid of the dark. Our world is filled with traumas and terrors that are or could easily become realities. And oftentimes when we are afraid of something, it's because we've realized we can't control whatever it is we are afraid of. Like Pharaoh, we try to overcome our fears by controlling everything we can and holding on tight to what we consider safe. We hunker down and try to hold everything close to us. Or maybe we decide to fight, ready to attack anything or anyone that feels like a threat to our safety or our livelihood. Whether we try to keep what we know in or try to keep what we don't know out, if we let fear rule our actions and our decisions, it's only going to continue to bring more chaos into the world. And it's not a very big step to go from fear to hatred. We read that in our passage for today. Pharaoh has put the Egyptian people in charge of the Israelites, and when this happens, they begin to dread the Israelites. Another translation says that the Egyptians begin to look at the Israelites with disgust and disdain. The Israelites' behavior showed that they no longer respect the people of Israel, and that they want to make their lives hard and ruthless. I'm sure some of them, maybe even Pharaoh himself, hated the Israelite people for no other reason than they weren't Egyptian, that they were the others. And so they did everything in their power to keep these people safe, and to, or to keep their people safe, and to control those that were viewed as a threat. In 1957, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech where he spoke about loving your enemies. And he says, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Many times we believe that the path to safety and security is rejecting the things that scare us. 
the reality is that this path towards safety and security isn't rejection or hate, but love. When we let fear make the decisions, our capacity to love erodes away. When fear makes the decisions, we can convince ourselves to reject anyone who doesn't look or think or act or pray or believe or vote or live like we do. When we let fear make the decisions, we build walls to keep people out. Differences are seen as ugly and threatening instead of beautiful and holy. When we let fear make decisions instead of love, we are going against the very heart that is the kingdom of God. One of the most frequent commands that we read in scripture from God and God's messengers is do not fear. In her book, This Here Flesh, Cole Arthur Riley says, she doesn't think that God says do not fear so many times because God is criticizing us for being afraid. Instead, God says this so that when we experience fearful moments, we will lean into our relationship with God and draw closer to it. Like the midwives, we should refuse to give power to those that try to cultivate a culture of fear and instead, we should place our fears into the hands of a loving God. Like these brave and courageous women, we are called to speak out against injustices and oppression and hatred, and instead give voice to God's love and grace so that we can change the course of history, whether that is for a single person or for a community, or dare we even dream for the entire world. Like Shifra and Pua, we are called to look fear in the face, to stand against hatred, and to usher in a new life that is found in the powerful story of God's love. We are called to be persistent in the Spirit's moving so that we can become a movement for wholeness in a world that is broken and fragmented. This, my friends, is the work that is set before us, to choose love above all things, because when we choose love, we can resist against the evils in the world. When we choose love, we can make good trouble. And when we choose love, we choose to say to those who let fear tell the story, not today. Let us be people who love the world and love its people like God does. And let us not be afraid to show it.